Section 5 of The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, Volume 2, The Secret of the Magnifique, by E. Phillips Oppenheim, Part 1. The man was awaiting the service of his dinner in the magnificent buffet of the Gare de Lyons. He sat at a table laid for three, on the right-hand side of the entrance and close to the window. From below came the turmoil of the trains. Every few minutes the swing doors opened to admit little parties of travellers. The solitary occupant of the table scarcely ever moved his head, yet he had always the air of one who watches. In appearance he was both unremarkable and undistinguished. He was of somewhat less than medium height, of unathletic, almost frail physique. His head was thrust a little forward, as though he were afflicted with a chronic stoop. He wore steel-rimmed spectacles with the air of one who has taken to them too late in life to have escaped the constant habit of peering, which had given his neck an almost stork-like appearance. His hair and thick moustache were iron-grey, his fingers long and delicate. The labels upon his luggage were addressed in a trim scholarly hand. Mr. John T. Laxworthy, passenger to blank via Paris. A maitre d'hôtel who was passing paused and looked at the two as yet unoccupied places. Monsieur desires the service of his dinner, he inquired. Mr. John T. Laxworthy glanced up at the clock and carefully compared the time with his own watch. He answered the man's inquiry in French which betrayed no sign of any accent. In five minutes, he declared, my friends will have arrived. The service of dinner can then proceed. The man bowed and withdrew, a little impressed by his customer's trim precision of speech. Almost as he left the table, the swing doors opened once more to admit another traveller. The newcomer stood on the threshold for a moment, looking around him. He carried a much-labelled dressing-case in his hand, and an umbrella under his arm. He stood firmly upon his feet, and a more thoroughly British, self-satisfied, and obvious person had to all appearance never climbed those stairs. He wore a travelling suit of dark grey, a check ulster, broad-toed boots, and a Homburg hat. His complexion was sandy, and his figure distinctly inclined towards corpulence. He wore scarcely noticeable side-whiskers, and his chin and upper lip were clean-shaven. His eyes were bright, and his mouth had an upward and humorous turn. The initials upon his bag were W.F.A., and a printed label upon the same indicated his full name as Mr. W. Forrest Anderson, passenger to blank, via Paris. His brief contemplation of the room was soon over. His eyes fell upon the solitary figure, now deep in a book, seated at the table on his right. He set down his dressing-case by the side of the wall, yielded his coat and hat to the attendant vestiaire, and with the pleased smile of one who greets an old friend, approached the table at which Mr. John T. Laxworthy sat waiting. The idiosyncrasies of great men are always worth noting, and Mr. John T. Laxworthy was without a doubt foredoomed from the cradle to a certain measure of celebrity. His method of receiving the newcomer was in some respects curious. 
from the moment when the swing doors had been pushed open and the portly figure of mr forrest anderson had crossed the threshold his eyes had not once quitted the heavy-looking volume the contents of which appeared so completely to absorb his attention even now when his friend stood by his side he did not at once look up slowly and with his eyes still riveted upon the pages he was studying he held out his left hand i am glad to see you mr anderson he said sit down by my side here you are nearly ten minutes late i have delayed ordering the wine until your arrival shall it be white or red mr anderson shook with much heartiness the limp fingers which had been offered to him and took the seat indicated his friend's eccentricity of manner appeared to be familiar to him and he offered no comment upon it white if you please chablis of a dry brand for choice sorry if i'm late beastly crossing beastly crowded train glad to be here anyhow mr john t laxworthy closed his book with a little sigh of regret and placed a marker within it he then carefully adjusted his spectacles and made a deliberate survey of his companion finally he nodded slowly and approvingly how about the partridges he inquired bad mr anderson declared with a sigh it was one storm in june that did it we went light last season though and i'm putting down forty brace of hungarians you see mr laxworthy touched the table with his forefinger and his companion almost automatically stopped quite excellent the former pronounced dryly don't overdo it i should think that this must be sydney mr anderson glanced towards the entrance then he looked back at his companion a little curiously mr laxworthy had not raised his head how the dickens did you know that it was sydney he demanded mr laxworthy smiled at the tablecloth i have a special sense for that sort of thing he remarked i like to use my eyes as seldom as possible a young man who had just completed a leisurely survey of the room dropped his monocle and came towards them from the tips of his shiny tan shoes to his smoothly brushed hair he was unmistakable he was young he was english he was well-bred he was an athlete he had a pleasant unintelligent face a natural and prepossessing ease of manner he handed his ulster to the attendant vestiaire and beamed upon the two men how are you forrest how do you do mr laxworthy he exclaimed looking jolly fit both of you mr laxworthy raised his glass he looked thoughtfully at the wine for a moment to be sure that it was free from any atom of cork then he inclined his head and turned to each of his companions i am glad to see you both he said on the whole i think that i may congratulate you you have done well i drink to our success the toast was drunk in silence mr forrest anderson set down his glass empty with a little murmur of content it is something he remarked vigorously attacking a new course to have satisfied our chief the young man opposite to him subjected the dish which was being offered to a long and deliberate survey through his eyeglass and finally refused it give me everything in france except the beef he declared must be the way they cut it i think quite right andy he went on glancing across the table to have satisfied such a critic as the chief here is an achievement indeed having done it let us hear what he proposes to do with us in other words mr anderson put in what is the game to be there was a short pause 
Mr. John T. Laxworthy was continuing his repast, which was, by the by, of a much more frugal character than that offered to his guests, without any sign of having even heard the inquiry addressed to him by his companions. They knew him, however, and they were content to wait. Presently he commenced to peel an apple and simultaneously to unburden himself. A great portion of this last year, he said, which you two have spent apparently with profit in carrying out my instructions, I myself have devoted to the perfection of a certain scholarly tone which I feel convinced is my proper environment. Incidentally, I have devoted myself to the various schools of philosophy. I will take a liqueur, declared the young man whose name was Sidney. Something brain-stimulating. A grand mania, waiter, if you please. The same for me, Mr. Forrest Anderson put in hastily. Also, in a few moments, some black coffee. Mr. Laxworthy did not, by the flicker of an eyelid, betray the slightest annoyance at these interruptions. He waited, indeed, until the liqueurs had been brought before he spoke again, continuing the while in a leisurely fashion the peeling and preparing of his apple. Even for some time after his friends had again offered him their undivided attention, he continued his task of extracting from it, with precise care, every fragment of core. In one very interesting treatise, he recommenced at last, I found several obvious truths ingeniously put. A certain decadence in the material prosperity of an imaginary state is clearly proved to be due to a too-blind following of the tenets of what is known as the hysterical morality, as against the decrees of what we might call expediency. A little sentiment like garlic in cooking is a good thing. Too much is fatal. A little sufficient morality is excellent, a superabundance disastrous. Society is divided into two classes, those who have and those who desire to have. The one must always prey upon the other. They are therefore always changing places. It is this continued movement which lends energy to the human race. As soon as it is suspended, degeneration must follow as a matter of course. It is for those who recognize this great truth to follow and obey its tenets. "'May we not hear more definitely what it is that you propose?' Anderson asked, a little anxiously. "'We stand,' Mr. Laxworthy replied, "'always upon the threshold of the land of adventure. At no place are we nearer to it than in this room.' It is our duty to use our energies to assist in the great principles of movement to which I have referred. We must take our part in the struggle. On which side, you naturally ask? Are we to be amongst those who have, and who through weakness or desire must yield to others? Or shall we take our place amongst the more intellectual, the more highly gifted minority, those who assist the progress of the world by helping towards the redistribution of its wealth? Sydney, how much money have you? Three hundred and ninety-five francs and a few coppers, the young man answered promptly. It sounds more in French. And you, Anderson? Mr. Forrest Anderson coughed. With the exception of a five-franc piece, he admitted, I am worth exactly as much as I shall be able to borrow from you presently. In that case, Mr. Laxworthy said dryly, our position is preordained. We take our place amongst the aggressors. The young man whose name was Sidney dropped his eyeglass. 
one moment he said andy here and i have exposed our financial impecuniosity at your request it can scarcely be a surprise to you considering that we have practically lived upon your bounty for the last year it seems only fair that you should imitate our candour there were rumours a short time ago of a considerable sum of money to which you had become entitled to tell you the truth the young man went on leaning a little across the table we were almost afraid or rather i was that you might abandon this shadowy enterprise of ours mr john t laxworthy without being discomposed which was almost too much to expect of a man with such perfect poise seemed nevertheless taken aback he opened his lips as though to make some reply and closed them again when he did speak it was grudgingly no successful enterprise or series of enterprises can be conducted without capital he said i am free to admit that i am in possession of a certain amount of that indispensable commodity i do not feel myself called upon to state the exact amount but such money as is required for our journeyings or for any enterprise in which we become engaged will be forthcoming mr anderson stroked his chin meditatively i am sure he said that that sounds quite satisfactory i call it jolly fine business the young man declared there is just one thing more upon which i think we ought to have an understanding you say that we are to take our place amongst the aggressors exactly what does that mean mr laxworthy looked at him coldly it means precisely what i choose that it shall mean he replied any enterprise or adventure in which we may become engaged will be selected by me and by me only my chief aim i have no objection to telling you this is to make life tolerable for ourselves to escape that dull monotony of idleness and incidentally to embrace any opportunity which may present itself to enrich our exchequer have you any objection to that none mr forrest anderson declared none at all sydney echoed there are three of us mr laxworthy went on we each have our use mine is the chief of all i supply the brains my position must be unquestioned oh, for my part i'm willing enough sydney replied it's been your show from the first mr forrest anderson who had dined well and forgotten his empty pockets laughed a genial laugh i agree he declared tell us when and where do we start and shall our first enterprise be pickwickian or am i to play the sancho panza to your don quixote and sydney's donkey mr laxworthy regarded his associates coldly there was a silence a silence which became somehow an ominous thing around them reigned a babble of tongues a clatter of crockery below the turmoil of the busy station the shrieking of departing trains but at the table presided over by mr laxworthy no word was spoken mr anderson's geniality faded away his young companion's amiable nonchalance entirely deserted him either of them would have given worlds to have been able to dispel the strange effects of this silence with some casual remark but upon them lay the spell of the conqueror the little man at the head of the table held them in the hollow of his hand it may be he said breaking at last that curious silence 
that no other occasion will ever arise when it will be necessary to speak to you in this fashion. So now listen. You are right to indulge in the urbanities of existence. Keep always the smile upon your lips if you can, but underneath let the real consciousness of life be ever-present. I do not claim for myself the genius of a Pickwick or the valour of a Don Quixote. On the other hand, we are not paltry aggressors against society, failing in one enterprise, successful in the next, a mark for ridicule and contempt one moment, and for good-humoured sufferance the next. I do not ask you to embark with me as farceurs upon a series of enterprises carried out upon the principle of let us do our best and chance the rest. It is just possible that the fates may be against us, and that we may live together for many months the lives of ordinary and moderately commonplace human beings, I ask you to remember that no sense of danger would ever deter me from embarking upon any adventure which I deemed likely to afford us either diversion, wealth, or satisfaction of any sort whatsoever. We are not pleasure-seekers. We are men whose one end and aim is to escape from the chains of everyday existence, to avoid the humdrum life of our fellows. Therein may lie for us many and peculiar dangers. Adopt, if you will, the motto of the pagans, Let us eat and drink, for to-morrow we die. So long as you remember, will you drink with me to that remembrance? Mr. Laxworthy, as he grew less enigmatic in his speech, became, if possible, more whimsical in his mannerisms. He ordered the best cognac, at which he himself scarcely glanced and turned with a little sigh of relief to his book. In the midst of this hubbub of sounds and bustle of diners, he continued to read with every appearance of studious enjoyment. His two companions were content enough, apparently, to relax after their journey and enjoy their cigars. Nevertheless, they once or twice glanced curiously at their chief. One of these glances he seemed, although he never raised his head, to have intercepted, for carefully marking the place in his book, he pushed it away and addressed them. "'Our plans,' he announced abruptly, "'are not yet wholly made. We wait here for—shall we call it an inspiration? Perhaps even at this moment it is not far from us.' Mr. Forrest Anderson and his vis-à-vis -vis turned as though instinctively towards the door. At that moment two men who had just passed through were standing upon the threshold. One was rather past middle age, corpulent with red features of a coarse type. His companion, who was leaning upon his arm, was much younger, and a very different sort of person. He was tall and exceedingly thin. His features were wasted almost to emaciation. His complexion was ghastly. He seemed to have barely strength enough to move. "'They are coming to the table next to us,' Laxworthy said in a very low tone. The address upon their luggage will be interesting. Slowly the two men came down the room. As Laxworthy had expected, they took possession of an empty table close at hand. The young man sank into his chair with a little sigh of exhaustion. A liqueur brandy, quick, the older man ordered as he accepted the menu from a waiter. My friend is fatigued. Sidney took the bottle which stood upon their own table, poured out a wine-glassful, and rising to his feet stepped across and accosted the young man. "'Do me the favour of drinking this, sir,' he begged. "'The service here is slow, and the brandy excellent. 
I can see that you are in need of it. It may serve, too, as an aperitif. The young man accepted it with a smile of gratitude. His companion echoed his thanks. Very much obliged to you, sir, he declared. My friend here is a little run down and finds travelling fatiguing. A passing melody, I trust, Sidney remarked, preparing to return to his seat. A legacy from that cursed graveyard South Africa, the older man growled. Sidney stepped back and resumed his seat. In a few minutes he leaned across the table. The Paradise Hotel, yeah, he said under his breath. Mr. Laxworthy looked thoughtful. You surprise me, he admitted. What do you know of them? Anderson inquired. Mr. Laxworthy shrugged his shoulders. Not much beyond the obvious facts, he admitted. Even you, my friends, are not wholly deceived, I presume, by the young man's appearance. They evidently were. Their faces expressed their non-comprehension. Mr. Laxworthy sighed. You must both of you seek to develop the minor senses, he enjoined reprovingly. Your powers of observation, for instance, are without doubt exceedingly stunted. Let me assure you, for example, that your sympathy for that young man is entirely wasted. "'You mean that he's not really ill?' Sidney asked, incredulously. "'Most certainly he is not as ill as he pretends,' Mr. Laxworthy declared dryly. "'If you look at him more closely, you will discover a certain theatricality in his pose which of itself should undeceive you.' "'You know who he is?' Sidney asked. "'I believe so,' Laxworthy admitted. "'I can hazard a guess even to his companion's identity, but the Paradise Hotel Ier.' Order some fresh coffee. We are not ready to leave yet. Anderson, watch the door. Sidney, don't let them notice it, but watch our friends there. Something may happen. A tall, broad-shouldered man with a fair moustache and wearing a long travelling coat had entered the buffet. He stood there for a moment looking around as though in search of a table. The majority of those present suffered his scrutiny unnoticing, indifferent, naturally absorbed in themselves and their own affairs. Not so these two men who had last entered. Every nerve of the young man's body seemed to have become tense. His hand had stolen into the pocket of his travelling coat, and with a little thrill Sidney saw the glitter of steel half shown for a moment between his interlocked fingers. No longer was this man's countenance the countenance of an invalid. It had become instead like the face of a wolf. His front teeth were showing. He had moved slightly so as to give his arm full play. It seemed as though a tragedy were at hand. The man who had been standing on the threshold deposited his handbag upon the floor near the wall and came down the room. Laxworthy and his two associates watched. Their neighbours at the next table sat in well-simulated indifference. Only once more Sidney saw the gleam of hidden steel flash for a moment from the depths of that ulster pocket. The newcomer made no secret of his destination. He advanced straight to their table and came to a standstill immediately in front of them. Both the stout man and his invalid companion looked up at him as one might regard a stranger. To all appearance Laxworthy was engrossed in his book. Sidney and Anderson watched and listened, but of all the words which passed between these three men not one was audible. No chance of countenance on the part of any one of the three indicated even the nature of that swift and fluent interchange of words. Only at the last, 
the elder man touched the label attached to his dressing-bag, and they heard his words, The Paradise Hotel, hier. We shall be there for at least a month. The newcomer stood perfectly still for several moments as though deliberating. The young man's hand came an inch or two from his pocket. Chance and tragedy trifled together in the midst of that crowded room, unnoticed save by those three at the adjoining table. Then, as though inspired with a sudden resolution, this stranger, whose coming had seemed so unwelcome, raised his hat slightly to the two men with whom he had been talking, and turned away. "'The Paradise Hotel at Yer,' he repeated. "'I shall know, then, where to find you.' The little scene was over. Nothing had happened. Nevertheless, the fingers of the young man, as his hand emerged from his pocket, were moist and damp, and his appearance was now veritably ghastly. His companion watched with a deep purple flush upon his face the passing of the stranger who had accosted him. He had the appearance of one threatened with apoplexy. "'One might be interested to know the meaning of these things,' Sidney murmured softly. Their chief looked up from his book. "'Then one must follow to the Paradise Hotel,' he remarked. "'I begin to believe,' Anderson declared, "'that it is our destination.' "'There is no hurry,' Laxworthy replied. "'Grimes once told me that this room in which we are now sitting "'was perhaps the most interesting rendezvous in Europe. "'Grimes was at the head of the foreign department at Scotland Yard in those days, "'and he knew what he was talking about. "'A woman wrapped in magnificent furs who was passing their table "'was run into by a clumsy waiter and dropped a satchel from her finger. "'Sidney hastened to restore it to her, and was rewarded by a gracious smile in which was mingled a certain amount of recognition. "'You seem fated to be my good Samaritan to-day,' she remarked. "'It is my good fortune,' the young man replied. "'Can I help you to get a table or anything? This place is always overcrowded.' She motioned with her head to where a maitre d'hôtel was holding a chair for her. "'It is already arranged,' she said. "'Perhaps we shall meet in the Lux afterwards, if you are going south.' "'You are travelling far?' Sidney ventured to inquire. "'Only to the outskirts of the Riviera,' she answered. "'I am going to Hier, to the Paradise Hotel.' "'Why do you smile?' "'My friends and I,' he explained, "'have met here to decide upon the whereabouts of a little holiday we mean to spend together. We were at that moment discussing a suggestion to proceed to the same place.' She gave him a little farewell nod as she passed on. If you decide to do so, she declared, it will give me great pleasure to meet you again. I congratulate you, Laxworthy remarked dryly, as Sidney resumed his seat. A most interesting acquaintance, yours. Do you know who she is? the young man asked. I only met her on the train. His chief nodded gravely. She is Madame Bertrand, he replied. Her husband at one time held a post in the foreign office under Foray. For some reason or other he was discredited, and since then he has died. There was some scandal about Madame Bertrand herself, and some papers which were missing from her husband's portfolio, but nothing definite ever came to light. "'Madame seems to survive the loss of her husband,' Mr. Forrest Anderson remarked, looking across at her admiringly. Laxworthy held up his hand. Almost for the first time he was sitting upright in his chair. 
his head still thrust forward in his usual attitude, his eyes fixed upon the door. The thin fingers of his right hand were spread flat upon the tablecloth. "'We have finished for the moment with the Madame Bertrands of the world,' he announced. "'After all, they are for the pygmies. Here comes food for giants.' The light of battle was in Laxworthy's eyes. The greatest of men have their moments of weakness, and even Laxworthy, for that brief space of time, forgot himself and his pose toward the world. His thin lips were a little parted, the veins at the sides of his forehead stood out like blue cords. His lips moved slowly. "'You can both look,' he said. "'They are probably used to it. You will see the two greatest personages on earth.' His companions gazed eagerly toward the door. Two men were standing there, being relieved of their wraps and directed towards a table. One was middle-aged, grey-headed, with a somewhat worn but keen face. The other was taller, with black hair streaked with grey, a face half Jewish, half romantic, a skin like ivory. "'The greatest man in the world,' Sidney repeated under his breath. "'You are joking, Chief. I never saw even a photograph of either of them before in my life.' "'The one nearest you,' Laxworthy announced, "'is Mr. Freeling Poynton. "'The newspapers will tell you that his fortune exceeds the national debt of any country in the world. "'He is, without doubt, the richest man who was ever born.' There has never yet breathed an emperor whose upraised finger could provoke or stop a war, whose careless word could check the prosperity of the proudest nation that ever breathed. These things Mr. Freeling Poynton can do. "'And the other?' Anderson whispered. "'It is chance,' Mr. Laxworthy said softly, which placed a sceptre of unlimited power in the hands of Richard Freeling Poynton, it is his own genius which has made the Marquis Lefont the greatest power in the diplomatic world. It was his decision which brought about war between Russia and Japan. It was he who stopped the declaration of war against Germany by our own Prime Minister at the time of the Algeciras difficulty. It was he who offered a million pounds to bring the Tsar of Russia to Germany, and he did it. There is little that he cannot do. "'Is he a German?' Anderson asked. "'No one knows of what race he comes,' Mr. Laxworthy replied. "'No one knows what country is really nearest to his heart. "'It is his custom to accept commissions or refuse them, "'according to his own belief as to their influence upon international peace. "'They say that he has English blood in his veins. "'If so, he has been a sorry friend to his native land.' "'We seem,' Sidney remarked, "'to have chosen a very fortunate evening for our little dinner here. "'The place is full of interesting people. "'I wonder where those two are going.' Maitre d'Hôtel, whose respect had been gained by the lavish orders from their table, paused and whispered confidentially in Mr. Laxworthy's ear. "'The gentleman down there, sir,' he announced, "'the grey gentleman with his old servant waiting upon him,' is Mr. Freeling Poynton, the great American multimillionaire. Luxworthy nodded slowly. I thought I recognized him by his photographs, he said. Is he going to Monte Carlo? The attendant shook his head. I was speaking to them a moment ago, sir, he declared. Mr. Poynton has been here a good many times. 
he and his friend are going for a fortnight's quiet to the Paradise Hotel at Hier. The maitre d'hôtel passed on with another bow. The three men looked at one another. Mr. Laxworthy glanced at the clock. "'Sidney,' he said, "'will you step down into the bureau "'and find out whether it is possible "'to get three seats in the train deluxe?' "'For Hier?' Sidney asked. Mr. Laxworthy assented gravely. "'Certainly,' he said. "'You might at the same time telegraph to the hotel.' "'To the Paradise Hotel?' Mr. Laxworthy inclined his head. End of The Secret of the Magnifique by E. Phillips Oppenheim, Part 1 Recording by John Trevithick